0: You kids, y'all can take off and head to Sunday school. All the grown-ups, if you want to, you can open your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew 9.35 this morning. Just looking at a couple verses. We'll, we'll let the young ones file out before we get started. So here's where we're headed this morning. We're going to talk about this concept, this idea of what does it mean to live like Jesus? Jesus. What does it mean to imitate Jesus? What does it mean to be like Christ? And this, this concept, this idea, is fundamental to the Christian faith. I mean, you see it all over Scripture. I mean, countless times, Jesus is going to His disciples at the very beginning of their discipleship and He says this, look, He says, follow Me and I will make you fishers of men. He says, look, you've got to follow Me. you got to be like Me. Uh, later on, Jesus looks at His disciples He says, if you love Me you obey my commands so if you truly have affection for me you're gonna try to live like me later on Paul picks this up and he says something like this to his church and to his followers he says imitate me as I imitate Jesus what we see all throughout scripture there is this call and command to live and to be like Jesus in fact just when we make the claim or consider ourselves to be Christians do you know what we're suggesting to the world that we are little Christ, that we are like Jesus. And so I don't know if you're like me, oftentimes when we talk about being like Jesus, we have a very systematic approach. We say, well, Jesus would do this, or Jesus wouldn't do this. Jesus would say this, or He wouldn't say this. Jesus would watch this movie, He wouldn't watch this movie. That's how we approach it, oftentimes. It's why we created those bracelets, the WWJD bracelets, right? What would Jesus do? But what I want to do this morning, I want to offer something different, not just a list of things that Jesus would do or wouldn't do. I want to give you a picture. I want to paint a picture. You know the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words. What I want to do with three verses is give you a picture, an image of what Jesus actually did. Because I don't believe, we don't have to wonder what Jesus would do. We have the Gospels, we have proof, we have evidence of what Jesus actually did What he gave his life to, what he spent his time doing, what he said, all these different things. And that's really what this passage is about. So here's where we're going to pick up. This is, in a sense, this is the high point of Jesus' ministry. I mean, he's almost on like rock star, superstar status. He's healing people. He's preaching. There's big crowds, big audiences. And this is where we pick up. And, And here's the bottom line. Here's what I really want to drive home this morning if that and and here's the point if you want to be like Jesus if you want to live like Jesus if you want to have ministry like Jesus if you wanna impact people like Jesus here's what it comes down to you've gotta have the feet the eyes and the heart of Jesus alright the feet the eyes and the heart of Jesus here's another way of putting it you've gotta walk like Jesus you've gotta see like Jesus and you have gotta feel like Jesus So I'm going to read this passage for us real quickly. And I want you to pay attention to Jesus' feet, His eyes, and His heart. Read along with me. It says this in verse 35. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them, Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So, what do we notice first? What do you notice about the feet of Jesus? Here's what I notice is that Jesus primarily puts his feet in two locations. He spends his time, he spends his energy in two places. On one hand, we've got the cities and villages. On the other hand, what do we have? We have the synagogues. And so here's what I see, and here's how we'd put it. Jesus spent time in the world, in the church. All right, so he had one foot firmly implanted in the world, but also one foot firmly implanted in the church. And here's oftentimes what we do in our day and age. The world is the place out there, beyond these walls. That's where the sin is. That's where the brokenness is. That's where the temptation is. Oftentimes, as Christians, we retreat from the world. We remove ourselves from the world. But that's not what Jesus does. He engages brokenness. He walks into sin. But at the same time, he remains firmly implanted in church life, in community. He has deep, meaningful relationships with his followers. And so here's what we see. Oftentimes, in our church... In our day and age, we make this an either-or scenario. Either I put both feet in the world, or I put both feet in the church. Jesus had one foot in both. And here's what oftentimes this leads to. See, oftentimes we will put both feet in the world. And so maybe we surround ourselves with people who don't know Jesus. Maybe we've got a lot of relationships, and we're engaged in culture, and we're working and we're spending time in the world. But oftentimes what happens if we don't have accountability if we don't have fellowship, if we don't have community, people who are encouraging us, calling us on our sin, talking to us about who God is, oftentimes what happens is we compromise. Even though we enter the world trying to change it, eventually the world pulls us down. And eventually what happens is we just start to live like the world. We lose our saltiness, our distinctive, what makes us unique followers of Christ. But there's also an opposite extreme. Right? There's another side to the ditch. We can put both feet in the church. And so you, you, you might fill your schedule with Bible studies and church groups and choir practice and all these different things. And you don't have any deep and meaningful relationships with people who don't know Jesus. You go from one church activity to the next. And look, you might not fall into any big, grievous sin, but you know what happens? This leads to isolation. All right You might not fall away from the faith, but you're having no impact in the world around you. And so what we see, Jesus doesn't same. He has one foot in the world and one foot in the church. And here's what's really amazing. Jesus not only lived this life, but he prayed this lifestyle for you and me. See, there's one section of Scripture where Jesus has this really long prayer, and it's right before Jesus goes to the cross. And here's what's really amazing. Jesus knows He's going to the cross. He knows that he is going to drink the cup of wrath, to take on the, the wrath that we deserve for our sin, the most intense spiritual pain all right, we can ever comprehend. And when we know we're about to face pain, what do we tend to pray about? What do we tend to focus on? What do we, what do we meditate on? Ourselves, right? We get really selfish. God, take this away from me. I can't deal with this, all right? We become very in, inward-focused. But not Jesus. He's unique. He's different. You know what Jesus prays for on the eve of the cross? He prays for His followers. He prays for His believers. He prays for you and me. And here's one of the things that Jesus prays. He says this. He says, Father, don't take them out of the world. Did you know that? Jesus prayed to the Father that Christians would not leave the world. But he adds on one more phrase. He says, Father, don't take them out of the world, but protect them from the evil one. All right? In a sense, you know what Jesus is praying? God, I want my followers to live the same life as me. I want them to be in the world, but I don't want them to compromise. I don't want them to isolate, but I don't want them to compromise. Here's how we say it. And I think Mike just prayed it. We say this, we want to be in the world, but not of the world. All right? It's the exact same phrase. It's the exact same sentiment. It's exactly what Jesus is praying. But He didn't just pray it. He also lived it. And so evaluate your own life. Here's what you got to ask yourself just practically. Do I have deep, meaningful relationships with people who follow Christ and people who don't know Jesus? we got to have both. Here's what you got to ask yourself. All right? Look at your feet. All right? Not literally, not right now. Don't inspect your cool, amazing shoes. But think, where do I walk? All right, where do I spend my time? Think about your social calendar. Think about your social agenda. Maybe pull your iPhone out later on today and ask yourself, wh- where do I spend the majority of my time? Is it right here in this building? Maybe it's, it's, it's I'm always on the square. I'm always in this bar. I'm always with these people. Maybe look at your call log or your text messages and ask yourself, who do I spend a majority of my time with? Is it just people in this room? Is it just people in my office? Is it just people who don't know you? Do I have deep and meaningful relationships with unbelievers and believers? Are there people in my life that I'm trying to win to Christ? But at the same time, are there people in my life who know everything about me? Who hold me accountable, who encourage me and affirm me on a daily basis? All right. So Jesus spent His time. His feet were implanted in two locations. But He was also doing two things. Do you guys notice? He was doing two actions. The first is this. He was healing people. All right. If you read throughout this section of Matthew 8, Matthew 9, Jesus is healing and performing a whole lot of miracles. I mean, the list goes like this. I mean, first off, He heals a paralyzed man. He gives a movement. He heals a woman who has an internal bleed. All right, he heals that. He, he brings a ruler's daughter from death to life. He approaches two blind men and gives them sight. He goes up to a man who's unable to speak and he gives him a voice. Time and time, what we see is the tender touch of God. Jesus going and meeting the physical needs in the cities and villages. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't just heal people, he also teaches. He proclaims the gospel. It says that he was preaching in the synagogues, in the cities, and villages. And so here's what we see all right, is that with his actions, with his hands, Jesus was displaying the power of the gospel. He was displaying the power of the kingdom. But with his mouth, with his words, he was explaining, proclaiming, heralding the power of the gospel. Do you see it? You got to have both. See, when Jesus went to a paralyzed man and gave him movement, all right, essentially what he was saying spiritually, he was saying this. He's saying, look, in the same way spiritually, you can't move. You're broken, you're helpless, but only Christ brings life. When Jesus approaches a dead daughter, he says, spiritually, you're dead. All right, but only I bring spiritual life. I bring spiritual sight, all right, I bring spiritual healing. Jesus was displaying the power of the gospel with His hands and His miracles, but He explained it with His words. And so if that's where Jesus went, if that's what Jesus was doing, meeting physical and spiritual needs, what did He see? Right, what did He see? What did He notice? Well, Matthew writes it down. It says right here that He saw the crowds. He saw the crowds. Alright, here's the point. If you want to serve like Jesus, if you want to minister like Christ, oftentimes the first step, it starts with our eyes. It starts with what we see. Because this is what's so amazing. There was something so unique, so profound about the way Jesus looked at just crowds, just cities. The author Matthew said, i got to write this down. Do you get what I'm saying? This isn't just a glance. This isn't just cutting his eyes towards the crowd. No, Jesus gazed. It was intent. It was focused. He looked at the brokenness. He looked at the world. And the author noticed it. And see, here's what we see. Is that when Jesus looks at something, when Jesus gazes at a need, it automatically leads to an affection. It leads to an emotion. And that emotion is compassion. But that compassion leads to action. And we know this instinctively, all right? I guarantee you just about everyone in this room has experienced this situation. All right. You're flipping channels late at night. All right, you're watching TV, and all of a sudden, alright, one of the, you 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 hear this long, sappy song, it's like Sarah McLaughlin or something, I can't even say her name, and you look on screen and there's like these little like ratty, nasty, mangy dogs on the screen, right? And what happens next? Some like B-level. All right, B-list celebrity comes on and says, we need your money, right? Because if you don't give, what's going to happen to this dog, what's going to happen to this animal, right? it's some big fundraiser for the pound, for the animal shelter. All right, usually when a commercial like that comes on, what do we instinctively do? All right, we start scrambling for that remote control. I mean, we're picking up cushions, we're looking underneath the sofa. No, we we, we got to find it because here's what we know. We know that if I watch this commercial long enough, If I'm confronted with these needs, if my eyes fix on real needs, I'm going to have to do something about it, right? I'm going to feel something, and I'm going to have to do something about it. And so we know in a moment like that, what do you do? you got to change the channel, all right? Even if it means getting up from the couch and actually pressing the button, it's what we do, all right? And so here's the thing, guys. Looking, seeing, gazing, not just a glance, it leads to compassion, and it leads to action so here's my question for you what is what 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 are your eyes upon what is your gaze set upon is it on god the father is it on the brokenness in the cities and villages is it on the needs of this city or maybe it's on your tv screen maybe it's on your iphone maybe it's on your bank account maybe it's on your schedule your weekly planner i don't know what it is But do you see the needs in the world around us? That's what Jesus saw. That's what He gazed upon. So if that's what Jesus saw, what did He feel when He saw these needs? What did He feel when He saw the crowds? Matthew gets right to the point. He says this, Jesus felt compassion. He felt compassion. Did you know this? If you look at all the emotions that Jesus experienced... The one emotion, the one adjective that is used most to describe the state of Jesus' heart is compassion. I wonder what people would say about me if they examined all the affections I felt. I know it wouldn't be compassion. But what does this word, word actually mean? This word compassion means that Jesus' stomach turned. All right, His stomach turned. Literally, this is how we would say it. He was sick to his stomach. All right, This isn't some romantic perspective, I mean, Jesus is getting sick to his stomach. Literally what it means is he felt it in his bowels, all right? We would say he felt it in his gut. Because here's what you got to understand, the Hebrews of Jesus' time, they're very literal, okay? Very literal. We're, we tend to be more symbolic, more figurative when, with our language, right? So if we, we want to make some big romantic gesture, what do we say? I love you with what? All of my heart, Now, are we saying, actually, this muscle, this organ is producing affection and romance in me? That's not what we're saying. We're just saying, I love you at the center of my being. Hebrews would say, look. instead, here's what Jesus is saying. I love these people with my gut, right? I love them with my bowels, all right? This is probably where where you don't need to imitate Jesus, okay? (laughs) I'm not encouraging, like, if you're going on some, like, anniversary, nice, romantic, candlelight dinner, to look to your spouse... Right, your one and only, your bay, and to say, Look, I love you with my bowels, right? That's not going to go over well. Don't be like Jesus with your romance. But here's what Jesus is trying to get across He's saying, Look, my inner organs, in my DNA, deep within me, I'm feeling compassion. My stomach is turning. I can't get rid of this. This isn't just a passing emotion, this isn't just a momentary affliction. This is in my gut. I am deeply moved. See, compassion is not just empathy. It's empathy that leads to action. And we see this pattern all throughout Jesus' life and ministry. He looks and sees a need. He feels compassion, but guess what? He does something about it. The story of Jesus and Nazareth, excuse me, Jesus. remember what happens? Jesus gets news that his boy, his friend Lazarus, has died. So, what does Jesus do? He uses his feet, he walks to the tomb. He uses his eyes, he looks at the body. And then what happens next, right? The shortest verse in the Bible. The one verse you definitely have memorized. Jesus what? He wept. And I think Andrew referenced this a couple weeks ago, but this isn't just getting a little misty-eyed. This isn't just a single teardrop. This This is weeping. This is overwhelmed with sadness and grief and compassion. But Jesus isn't controlled by his emotions, no. He does something about it. He raises Lazarus from death to life. It's the exact same pattern that we see right here. And so why? Here's the real question. Why did Jesus feel compassion? Why was he sick to his stomach? Why was he broken over the people that he saw in the cities and villages? Well, here's why. When Jesus looks at the world, you know what he sees? He sees people who are harassed and helpless. Here's what that means. It means that we are thrown down. We're on our back. We're devastated. We are helpless. We're defenseless. And this is what's really interesting. I mean, this is a strong rebellion. These are strong words. For the cities and villages in Jesus' times, but for our day and age, for our culture, for our nation. Because think about it this way. Just a month ago, on July 4th, what did we celebrate, right? What, what do we grill out and shoot, shoot fireworks in celebration of? Because America is the land of the free, right? The home of the brave. We have our independence. We're not defenseless. We're not broken. We're not destroyed. We're not on our backs. But Even secular sources would point otherwise. Because here's what, here's what is going on in our nation, our culture today. Is that historically, we are one of the most prosperous nations of all time. All right We're one of the most educated cultures of all time. but do you know this? is the combined revenue of pornography is greater excuse me the revenue of the pornography industry is greater than the combined incomes of Major League Baseball, the NFL, the NBA and the NHL.? All right? If you want to know what America's true pastime is, you've got to follow the money. And it ain't sports, it ain't baseball, it's pornography and sex. Right? A typical American has over $20,000 in credit card debt. Right? Even though we live in one of, the most, one of the most prosperous cultures of all time, you know what the number one type of prescription is today? It's an antidepressant. Right? Obesity rates are skyrocketing. And so here's what we see. Even though we live in nice homes, even though we drive nice cars, we have nice bodies, nice clothes, and nice smiles, You know what Jesus says? Apart from me, you are harassed and helpless. You are sheep without a shepherd. You are devastated. You are destroyed. But Jesus' indictment isn't just about the world out there. It's not just about the cities. It's not just about the culture. It's not just about the villages. He's also calling out the church. Because Jesus makes this statement. He says, you're like sheep. Without a shepherd. Now keep in mind, where is Jesus teaching? Where is he preaching? He's preaching in the cities and villages, but where else? In the synagogues. Did you the word shepherd is actually the exact same word for pastor? And do you know what Jesus is saying to the people in the synagogues? Hey, even you are like sheep without a shepherd. You know why? Because the leaders and pastors and shepherds of the synagogues were a group of men called the Pharisees. All right? I won't give you the whole story, but, but long story short, Pharisees were men who were extremely moral. Right? They were impeccable in how they followed the Old Testament law. But they had one fatal flaw to their theology and their life, and it was this, is that they obeyed God to earn His love. Right? They followed rules to earn God's favor, and even though they followed the laws of God, they hated Jesus. In fact, the Pharisees were instrumental in Jesus' crucifixion. And so here's what we see. These men, the shepherds of the synagogue, they followed the commands of God, but they hated Jesus. And Jesus says, in a similar way, if you obey me, if you read my Bible, if you give to my church, right? Right? If you, even if you pray to me, but you lack a love for me, you are still harassed and helpless. Do you get the point? Even if you do the external right religious things, if you pray to Jesus without love for Jesus, you're still harassed and helpless. This is the point Jesus is really trying to drive home. He's saying this, apart from me, you're helpless. So here's my question. We'll bring it back again to the crowds when you're in downtown Carrollton when you flip on the news when you look at the cities the villages when you look at the world around us what do you feel is the dominant emotion compassion like Christ or maybe it's something else maybe what you experience the world around you is just bitterness I mean you get frustrated you look at the world and you say when are they gonna figure it out when are they gonna get it right When's the Supreme Court going to get it right? When's this politician going to get it right? When's this school going to get it right? And you just get frustrated and irritated. Maybe you feel something else. Maybe you just feel bored, apathetic, complacent. You look at the world around you and you're just like, who cares? Why bother? This world, this nation, this city is too far gone. What can I do? Who cares? Or maybe you feel something like Jesus. You feel brokenness. You feel brokenness. Jesus experienced deep empathy, but there was expectation. He experienced deep brokenness, but there was hope. He maintained hope because He saw the potential. Do you see what Jesus says next? He says, the harvest is plentiful. There is a ring of hope, a tone of hope to how Jesus sees the world. Because there's always hope with the Gospel. The Gospel is the power to do the impossible. To bring men and women from death to life. See, God sees a harvest in the world around us. But do you see this? Jesus makes one more observation. He says, the harvest is plentiful. There's potential. There's hope. There's reason to be optimistic. But the laborers are few. He says says this, I need more workers. I need some help. And so if that's where Jesus went, if that's what he saw, if that's what he felt, here's the big question. What did Jesus do about it? I mean, what did he actually do? How did he meet these needs? What did he give his life, give his his time to? Well, the good thing is we have this answer. So probably here's what happened. Jesus spent the entire day healing people, proclaiming the gospel in the cities and the synagogues, and at the very end of a long, hard day of ministry with his 12 disciples, They leave the city, and they probably walked up to a hill. And so they've got a very nice, scenic overlook, and they're looking at the city, they're looking at the village, where they spent their day just laboring, all right? Sharing the gospel, healing people, and here's what Jesus says. But before we get to what he says, notice what he doesn't say, all right? He doesn't point out that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. I mean, if I'm Jesus in this moment, you know what I'm saying? Let's go do something about it, right? I'm I'm like channeling my inner football coach, giving a pregame speech. I'm trying to pump the disciples up, and I'm saying, let's take this city. All right? Let's start a program. Let's start a church. Let's start sharing the gospel. Let's make this happen. But here's what's really interesting. Jesus doesn't move quickly in this moment. If anything, He hesitates. He pauses. He slows down, and He calls for this. He says, we need to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. This is Jesus' solution. This is His response to the brokenness of the world. Earnest prayer to the Lord of the harvest. And here's what you got to understand. That word earnest, it combines two concepts, two ideas, two definitions. And earnest prayer is this. It's a prayer with passion and persistence. Do you get that? The word earnest combines... Two ideas. It's a passionate prayer and a persistent prayer. And look, 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 walk with me a little bit. I mean, oftentimes when we are confronted with a need, we, we tend to pray pretty passionately, right? And so Jesus is saying, look, it doesn't need to be this rote, boring, you know, standard cookie cutter prayer God save the world. He's saying, no, look, engage your heart, feel compassion, break for these people, pour out your soul, pour out your heart. Pray with passion. But, but sometimes when we pray with passion, it's just a fleeting prayer. It's a momentary prayer. It's an isolated prayer. And we move on with our day and we totally forget about it. But not Jesus. It's a persistent prayer. Daily, regularly, consistently, He is opening His heart. He is praying to the Lord of the harvest. And look guys, this is really practical. This is really good. Do you notice what Jesus prays for? He prays for laborers. This, this can transform your prayer life. See, oftentimes, when I'm confronted, maybe with a coworker, a friend, somebody I know who doesn't know Jesus, usually this is what I pray. God, would you save them? Just save them. But that's not what Jesus prays. You know what Jesus prays? Jesus prays for laborers. You want to know a more effective prayer, prayer? A more intentional prayer is to pray like Jesus, to pray this way. God, would you send a laborer? God, would you send someone to present the gospel? God, would you send someone to reach my brother? To reach my boss? To reach my cousin? To reach my teammate? And you know what happens? If you start praying for laborers long enough, with passion and persistence, you know what happens? Oftentimes, you become the answer to your prayer. You become that laborer. And that's exactly what happens in Matthew 10.1. These disciples not only pray for they become laborers. If you read with me in Matthew 10, 1, it says this. Jesus, he called him to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So here's what we see. How does God redeem the brokenness in the world around us? How does he redeem the jacked up cities and villages? He redeems it through earnest prayer and through laborers through people like you and me. And what Jesus right, does right here is He is commissioning the disciples. Essentially, He's looking at these 12 men and He's saying, you've seen where my feet go. You've seen what my eyes fix upon. You've seen what my heart feels. Now go be my, go be my feet. Go be my eyes. Go be my heart in the cities and villages. In fact, Jesus actually repeats this exact same commission. We call it the Great Commission. And it's at the end of Jesus' leadership of these 12 men. In Matthew 28, all right, what does Jesus say? It sounds really familiar. He says this, All authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. And he looks at his disciples and he says, Go and make disciples of all nations. And so here's the thing. The same commission that Jesus utters to these 12 men, he extends to us. To the universal church. To the church past, present, future In a sense, you know what Jesus is saying to King's Chapel, to this church, to each and every one of us, to you, to me? He's saying this. He's saying, walk into Carrollton. Be my eyes. Be my heart. I want you to walk, and I want you to see, and I want you to feel like me in the year 2015 in Carrollton, Georgia. We are an extension of the power of Christ. So, that's the big point, right? That's the main idea. Be like Jesus. Be His feet, be His eyes, and be His heart. You guys ready to go? You guys ready to do this? Now, let me ask you this. If you're you're even being halfway honest, even as I prepare for this sermon, that's a pretty tall order, right? That's a pretty high calling. Just be like Jesus in Carrollton today. All right? I'm going to be honest. I don't know if I can pull that off. Because I started to evaluate my, my feet, my eyes, and my heart, and I missed the mark. When I think about my feet, instead of walking towards needs, walking toward, towards brokenness, oftentimes I retreat to my couch or to my home or to my favorite TV show. I think about my eyes and what I expose my eyes to, and usually it's not God the Father, it's not the needs around me, it, it, it's, it's just nonsense. Right? Maybe you use your eyes to look at things you shouldn't. Maybe it's websites or TV shows or different things like that. I think about my heart and what I feel. My heart's not marked by compassion. It's not the dominant emotion within me. Oftentimes, you know what I feel? Anger and frustration and bitterness. Maybe even apathy. See, oftentimes when we only hold Jesus forth as an example to imitate, it leads to guilt, it leads to shame. And Jesus was a perfect example, but he was more than that. He wasn't just an example, he was a sacrifice. And so here's what I want us to do, just real briefly. I want us to think about this story in a different perspective, from a different light. See, oftentimes when we hear these stories, we like to insert our lives into one of the characters. I'd be willing to bet, when I first read this, I know I did, that you probably just put yourself and numbered yourself among the twelve, right? A follower of Jesus. A disciple. Well, here's what I want to want to do. I want to tell the story again, but I don't want you to view yourself as a disciple, but as a lost, harassed, and helpless sheep. Because when you think about it this way, it changes everything. Think about this. Think about the feet of Jesus. Jesus left heaven and he came to earth. You could put it this way: Jesus left the perfect synagogue. You know what the synagogue was? It was a place of worship. It was a location that represented lives coming into the presence of God. And so when Jesus was in heaven, it was the perfect synagogue. It was the perfect presence of God. And He left the the synagogue and He came to earth, to the cities and the villages where there was sin, temptation, and brokenness. And what did Jesus see? What did He fix His eyes upon? He saw the world. He saw people like you and me who are thrown down, who are harassed, who are helpless, in need of a, sh- of, of a Savior and a shepherd. Well, what did Jesus feel? Well, I know what He didn't feel. He didn't feel bitterness. He didn't look at you. He didn't look at me and say, hey, He just needs to figure it out on His own. Right? He wasn't bored. He wasn't just saying, oh, they'll figure it out. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't resentful. He was broken. He felt compassion for you and me. But that compassion didn't just stop at an emotion. He did something about it. Remember, compassion leads to action. So what did Jesus do? In order to save the sheep, the good shepherd, Christ himself, he gave up his life. Remember what Jesus says? He says this. He says, I'm the good shepherd. Well, how do we know Jesus is good? How do we know he's a really good shepherd? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, I'm a good shepherd because I lay down my life for my sheep. See, our good shepherd, when he was on this earth, remember, he healed diseases. But on the cross, he was stricken with the disease of sin. See, our good shepherd, he always perfectly proclaimed the gospel in the streets, and the synagogues. But on the cross, he was treated as a hypocrite, a heretic, a false teacher. See, Jesus always prayed earnestly, consistently. He poured out his heart. But on the cross, Jesus offered a prayer to God and it went unanswered. So, why should we build laborers? Why should we enter the harvest? Why should we be the feet and the eyes and the heart of Jesus in Carrollton, in this city? Well, here's the real reason why. is because Jesus came. He left heaven and came to earth. He saw us. He felt compassion. And then he gave up his heart. He did that for us. So I want to leave you just with one quick story. Because I think sometimes when we read this one phrase, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Sometimes what I tend to visualize is that God is up in heaven, and he's almost worried. He's wringing his hands, wondering, how am I going to get this done? All right, this world is just too far gone. I need laborers. I don't know if I can pull this off. Now, here's what I want you to remember. When, G, when God says, all right, the laborers are few, he doesn't make that statement in exasperation or desperation. It's invitation. Do you get that? It's not desperation. It's invitation. And here's what I mean. All right, you young kids, y'all probably don't remember this. I don't know if they do this anymore. When I was growing up, they had something during elementary school where you actually got to join your dad and work with him for a day. Does anybody ever experience something like that growing up? All right. It was like, go, go to work with your dad day. All right. My dad worked for a nonprofit. it was a real white collar type job, I mean he's making phone calls, he's meeting with investors, all right? he's sending out emails, and so I'm like an eight year old kid, all right? there's not a benefit I can bring all right, to a nonprofit. But on those days, what my dad decided to do is that we would do yard work and we'd do it around his office. And so I'd show up and I'd have my boots on and I'd have my work jeans on and he'd have some gloves sitting out and my dad and I would spend the day picking up trash, weeding the flower beds, sweeping the sidewalks, cutting the grass, doing all these different things. Now let me ask you this. Alright? What my dad's Mindset was when I joined him for work for the day. I tell you what, he wasn't thinking. I tell you what, he wasn't feeling. He wasn't thinking to himself, Hey, free labor. All right, I'm going to stick it to this kid. I've got a, I've got a hundred things on this to do list, and I'm going to wear him out. All right, he probably wasn't thinking, Man, I'm going to get all these big time projects completed. All right, this kid's going to make a huge impact on my nonprofit, on my organization. Now think about it this way, if anything, my presence on the job site, my presence at the office, it slowed him down, right? I I made him laugh.